We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Rest of season expectations for some of the league's most exciting players and teams. That's what we're going to be talking about today. On Stealing Bananas, brought to you by WinBet. I'm Ben Gretsch. You can find my newsletter, Stealing Signals, at bengretsch.substack.com. With me, as always, is Sean Siegel. You can find all of his great work at Rotoviz. Sean, last episode, we kind of joked toward the end. We talked about a, just a ton of interesting sort of usage notes and changes in Week 10. One of the really exciting things from Week 10 was the return of, of Jonathan Taylor. We were just talking about before we went live here, we're, we're Taylor rips off a long touchdown run. He plays this massive snap share. Things look very positive for him. You just said to me how exciting it was for his value that Matt Ryan was back under center. I'll let you talk about that in a moment. We hit on Christian McCaffrey a little bit and talked about it at the end that we dive into that a little bit more. And you mentioned to me that there's a lot to talk about with the 49ers. And I agree. I mean, the passing game, there's so much exciting stuff. And that, that offense looks so good. And they didn't look great this week because they went very, very run heavy against a team, the Chargers, that teams often do run against a lot. But that team is going to play a factor in the fantasy playoffs this year. Uh, I think we agree on that. There's a lot of, of skill there. I mean, that looks like the best skill position group in the NFL probably right now. A lot of stuff we can dive into there. We also wanted to hit on our one of our rookie favorites that's a little bit of a surprise who gets a lot of opportunity now with an unfortunate injury for Zach Ertz. It's never something that we're rooting for, but Trey McBride is a guy that I want to get your thoughts on because we didn't get to him on the last show. But let's start with the running backs. You just mentioned to me how exciting things look for Jonathan Taylor. You seem pretty uh, upbeat about it again. You mentioned last week you had written about this sort of curse of the 101 and how it seemed like another lost season for the 101s. But Taylor now, back in the discussion, and, and I asked you sort of something that our buddy Pete Overzet asked me on Ship Chasing last night, who would you take rest of the season, Christian McCaffrey or Jonathan Taylor? I think it's a really interesting discussion. And I, I want to expand that and add in Austin Eckler, Saquon Barkley, whoever else you want to add in. Like, who would you take as the RB1 right now, rest of season? I know there are a lot of formats where you can draft rest of season. I would be pretty ADP flexible on that. But, like, if we were just trying to handicap it, I think it's tough. I think you can make cases a lot of different ways. Um, I'm optimistic about Taylor as well, and I'm optimistic about McCaffrey as well, even though I know there's a lot of people that are concerned about Elijah Mitchell. But that was going to be sort of the tenor of where I wanted to go with the McCaffrey discussion today is still being very optimistic. What are your initial thoughts on that kind of 
jumble of, of of good players at the top of the running back position where it's just not really clear who the who the one that might take off and be the the league winner will be this year. Yeah, so just to give my answer off the top, so it doesn't seem like I'm dodging in any way, shape, or form, I would take McCaffrey. I think that's probably not that controversial, even though I hated what they did in Week 10. I hated it for him. I hated it for the receivers. I hated it for their chances of going deep in the playoffs. I hated every part of it. Agreed. I, <laughs> I still think that his upside in what he can do gives him just a completely different context than everybody else but austin eckler definitely going to be in there he's leading the way in terms of expected points and part of that has been the environment with the chargers and despite the fact that the chargers offense hasn't been particularly good austin eckler is basically peak alvin Kamara, to where he can go out and give you three to four fantasy points over expectation on top of that workload we see him continue to break in these touchdowns from from distance, and we talk about distance, you know, 15 yards, 12 yards, 20 yards, 7 yards. I mean, he doesn't have to get a bunch of carries from the 1 and 2 yard line, even though he has had some of those. He's also lost some of those. But he doesn't have to have all of those in order to score touchdowns. Obviously, with the loss of the receiving weapons, he's going to be very involved in that part of the game. And even though the offense has not been nearly as dynamic because of all the losses, you still have Justin Herbert, right? It looks like... Allen and Mike Williams are going to come back and have some level of effectiveness, probably not what people were hoping for preseason in the near term, maybe even this week, but probably before the fantasy playoffs, if these guys don't get re-injured, I would think that both of them are extremely strong candidates for being re-injured, which isn't you know what you're hoping for if you have them on your fantasy rosters. So that's kind of the situation there. You think about Jonathan Taylor and in the zero RB playbook a week ago, I was writing about the curse of the 101. It's been mind boggling to see how all of these guys who come off of these amazing profiles and these fantastic seasons have suffered injuries and been wiped out completely or had little nicks that knocked them well down to where not impact players. And, you know, at the 101, you, you definitely want that impact. Jonathan Taylor looked like he was going to be maybe a little bit of a mix, maybe a guy who wasn't an impact player, and then also you lose him, but then he comes back. And I think to see him last week, to see that explosiveness, he's someone who has missed very little time throughout the course of his football career. I think that's obviously a very big positive for him. Even if you don't think it's necessarily predictive of what he's going to do in the future from an injury perspective, he comes in healthy from the point of view of, of what's happened to his body so far. Well, now this season, you got the ankle injury he's not 100 but they do keep him out a little bit maybe even are extra careful he breaks off that long run i think justifiably the fantasy community and the football community in general was very skeptical of this coaching hire you know mocked the idea of bringing in someone who hasn't been a coach it's a slap in the face to a lot of the other people within your organization and yet that was an encouraging game from the colts and if for no other reason then he convinces ownership to go back to matt ryan and Matt Ryan was a key part because I mean, he's going to throw passes at Jonathan Taylor, even though that wasn't a big part of this last game. But then you also have to have the defense being a tiny bit honest. We know Matt Ryan is bad, but even a tiny bit honest, giving you Michael Pittman, giving you Paris Campbell, now you can't basically run blitz Jonathan Taylor every play, and he's got a shot at it. The crazy thing here, and you see this long run immediately then 
change his efficiency, which is what long runs do. Jonathan Taylor, compared to last season, was giving up a touchdown and two points conversion worth of scoring just in terms of efficiency. I mean, that's that's incredible, right? So we don't necessarily expect him to be 2021 Jonathan Taylor, but he's also probably not going to be the guy that we saw in the first half of the season, and that puts him in the mix. Then what do you make of, of someone like Saquon Barkley? And definitely, obviously, chiming in on those, those other three. But Barkley is an interesting one after this last week where it depends on how you're looking at this. You pull up Blair Andrews' fantastic zero RB watch list piece where he looks at the stars and then all of the things that are happening behind them. But we see that the number three guy in expected points this last week was Saquon Barkley accounts for 60% of his team's total opportunities. Third in EP, despite that, 21.8, but 20-plus expected points on the ground, one and a half through the air. Is there any concern that this has actually morphed into not a great fantasy profile for him, even with the immense number of carries there? And even though the Giants are massively outperforming as a team we're not really now into this environment where Barkley is being used as a receiver which is why he was such a phenomenon as a rookie right and and not that it's going to be the same offense by any stretch but you think about what Dable did with the Bills and how they didn't really use the backs until that very end with Singletary but I think you have to be a little bit concerned that they're actually not going to throw enough passes to Barkley for him to ever quite get back to a level where he would be a legitimate 101, 102 pick in redraft, which at his age and with the injury background and the quality of the offense, I mean, that raises some big red flags in Dynasty too, if you're making moves in these next couple of weeks before the deadline. Yeah, the receiving stuff with Barkley is really interesting because that was the thing that you, know, you talk about his rookie season. He had a target share of 21%. And I mean, I don't know that we think about him as this like math. That's a massive number for a running back, but it's this massive receiving back, but it was huge in his rookie season. It was down to 15, 14, 12% the last few years. And then this year it's right in that range. Still it's at 16%. It's, it, I mean, it's been fine in terms of a percentage perspective, but like you said, are they going to throw enough? And that's been the big issue because he doesn't have the big receiving line. I think, I mean, he leads the NFL in rushing yardage right now. The TDs haven't really followed as much as they maybe could have, and in part also because of the offense. It's really unfortunate, but he's kind of that trap back profile a little bit right now, right? Like he's not getting enough green zone touches for how good he is and how much of a workhorse he is based on the team not having enough green zone plays. It's not because he doesn't have a high percentage of green zone work for his team. They love to give him the ball when they get down there. And then he's not catching – enough balls, 29 catches on the season. I mean, that's the story with Eckler is the exact opposite, the high-value touch stuff. When I say trap back, I mean a back who doesn't get enough high-value touches as sort of a percentage of their overall touches. Barkley, 198 carries so far this year, tons of touches, doesn't have the high-value touches the way that we would like to see. Eckler, 67 catches already, 20 more than any other running back. I mean, that's been the big story for him in PPR, as well as the 10 touchdowns, which leads all running backs that was a big question. Will he maintain the goal line work? Not only has he, he's been very effective and scored a ton. I mean, you wouldn't have 
I probably wouldn't have guessed that he would be leading the NFL in touchdowns at this point in the season. I mean, he has more than like, you know, Joe Mixon had a five TD game. He has eight on the year. <laughs> like Eckler has 10. I don't think I see any other back that has more than eight. I'm kind of adding the rushing and receiving together, but he's got a couple touchdown lead on everyone else. So that, I mean, that's been really helpful. That is the kind of thing where, I mean, the receiving side having so much of a receiving profile right now, massively more receptions per game. I wrote about this a couple of weeks ago in stealing signals. I don't have the numbers in front of me right now, but it was like at least a catch and a half or two catches per game more than his previous career high. Um, just a lot of receptions that's hard to maintain at that level for the rest of the year. You'd probably expect it to be a little bit lower. Also hard to maintain 10 touchdowns in nine games at that level for the rest of the year, especially when you talk about Keenan Allen, Mike Williams are actually practicing this week. Their status is uncertain, but at a certain point, the Chargers are going to get these guys back and actually have some receiving weapons. They're one of the most obvious teams in terms of how health has impacted what they can run out there for their passing weapons. Keenan Allen and Mike Williams would just be a massive boost to what they've been trying to do with, with pass catchers down the field. And that's had a huge impact on why Eckler's had so much receiving. So, I mean, obviously he's in the discussion, but you would expect him to come back a little bit. Cause I mean, he's been very, very good as well, but I mean, he has fewer overall touches with his rushing in receiving than even Barkley's rushes. I just mentioned 198 rushes for, for Barkley. Eckler only has 104 carries. He's got a ton of receptions. He has the opposite of a trap profile. A ton of his touches are these high-value touches. It's great. If that comes down at all a little bit, I mean, he's probably not going to score at a high enough level if any of these other guys hits their ceiling where Eckler's the RB1 from this point forward. He's still going to be very, very good. I love the peak Alvin Kamara comparison. I mean, that's that's really what he's been and who he is, and he's been efficient. He's, and again, he's going to continue to be good. He could very easily be the RB1. Wouldn't be my pick. My pick would be McCaffrey as well, but – I said on ship chasing when, when Pete asked this, I think in one week we're going to believe that Jonathan Taylor was the correct answer. And so often we have short memories on these discussions because of the Taylor matchup that I mentioned on our last show with the Eagles, who teams have been very run heavy against him since Jordan Davis went down their big D tackle and, and the way Jeff Saturday went run heavy with Taylor and used him over 90% of the snaps in his first game. And he hasn't really been overworked and he looks healthy now, but, it's not a situation where they need to scale him back. Like, I just can't get – like, it feels like the spot in their season where they're going to ride Taylor because it worked last week in Saturday's first game, and you do it again until it stops working, and the matchup dictates it. There's just never really been such an obvious fit for me where players like – I mean, and, and you know, I joked last night, he's probably going to get 15 carries as a result, but I think it's so obvious he's going to get 30. He's going to get so heavily used in this game. So he's going to probably have a very big game in week 11 and look like the answer to this question next week, but I'm with you the rest of the way I would take McCaffrey still to, I, I mean, he's the one that I kind of want to dig into the most because his usage was still really good. And a lot of people were concerned that Elijah, Elijah Mitchell had more yardage, had more overall carries. It was a very run heavy game. It was matchup dictated with the chargers being a team that for years now, I mean, since Brandon Staley took over have, been a team that lets you run against them i've kind of i mean I, I agree with everything you said about what their offense in week 10 meant for everything for for their chances in the playoffs that's not what we want to see out of this offense i've been kind of probably lying to myself a little bit but telling myself there's no way that they can be like that going forward because i mean it was effective but also if their defense wasn't so good late, and this that could be a problem because their defense is very good, 
who wasn't so good late and held the Chargers to no first downs on all three of their fourth uh, fourth quarter possessions, they could end up losing that game, right? Like they tur- they don't have a huge lead. They don't really put a team away necessarily. They have to have their defense hold. Their defense does hold. Herbert doesn't have much in the passing game. And again, no first downs on all three of their fourth quarter possessions for the Chargers. But if you don't get that, I mean, this, this should have been a more dominant win is what I'm saying. I hope they learn that lesson. I think they will. This was their most run-heavy game by quite a bit since week two, since Trey Lance's last start, when obviously week one and two, they were very run-heavy, a little bit of a different offense at that time. But the the McCaffrey usage, he still plays 65% of the snaps. He runs routes on 73% of the dropbacks, which I that was the really exciting thing for me, which is if he's going to give up touches to Elijah Mitchell, it's okay if they're low-value touches. We've been saying this for years with McCaffrey when he's with the Panthers. We don't like when they just run him into the line every single time and don't use him effectively in the passing game. Again, this was a pass rate over expected game that was very negative and a lot of rush attempts. Any other outcome where they're closer to neutral or a little bit pass heavy, McCaffrey's role looked stronger in this game because of how many routes he ran. He was the preferred running back every time they did drop back. This is a massive route share for a guy who was being talked about as being in a committee now coming out of that game because of all the carries that Mitchell got. There were high value touches for Mitchell, though there were green zone touches. A bunch of those were on the very last drive. Uh, the Chargers turned the ball over on downs on the eight-yard line, their own eight, and Mitchell got three straight carries from there in, didn't score. They kicked the field goal. That was basically it. Uh, they had Mitchell kind of doing a lot of that type of grinding, running. I don't even know that they were trying to score there. They were kind of trying to run the clock and kick that field goal to put the game away. There were a couple other spots where Mitchell was running effectively. There was one where it looked like McCaffrey was about to go on the field, and they kind of pulled him back, and it seemed like, he thought it was his turn to to sub in, but the team was like, no, Mitchell's going good. Let's let him go. It's it, The way I read this was it was Mitchell's first game back. He played well. You want to reward the player who's missed all this time, worked his way back, and is playing effectively and playing well. It's a run-heavy game plan anyway. And you're almost like, what, what's the point of running McCaffrey 20 times? They still run McCaffrey 14 times, and he gets four catches, and he has 18 touches. If you look at his role within the context of this of this game plan, it was still fine. They still used him plenty. It's like outside of what they wanted to do with McCaffrey as part of their offense, they ran the ball a ton more as opposed to potentially throwing more. And on those runs, like, okay, well, Elijah Mitchell's the other guy that we're going to focus on this week. We're going to have two running backs have 18 plus touches. I, I mean, I, 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 a lot of people were concerned about that. I'm not because of the routes, because of the fact that McCaffrey looks like he's going to get a lot of high value touches. Mitchell did end up with five green zone touches. McCaffrey still had four of his own. Mitchell's were all on two drives, and one of those being that very late drive that wasn't really even a, you know, we we need to convert a touchdown situation, more like we're just running into a heavy defensive front. Uh, McCaffrey had his four over three separate drives. He was coming in to get those touches. It's a little bit concerning for McCaffrey's, like, three touchdown potential that Mitchell might get some of these carries. But Mitchell also didn't score on any of his five green zone carries. McCaffrey did on one of his. I still think you have to think that McCaffrey is the lead for the touchdown equity in close, as well as the clear lead for the receiving stuff. And that's, I mean, that's where the ceiling is built. So I'm pretty excited about him. I'm still, you know, I, I came out of this game feeling like it wasn't that much of a concern. And Elijah Mitchell running well is is good for the Niners and it's good for, and it's, it's not great for McCaffrey if they use him more than we want to see, but it's not like a death knell or a massive concern. 
And in most outcomes where they're not uh, running the balls heavily and their pass rate over expected is more neutral. I mean, I I think we're going to see a lot more McCaffrey or this is sort of like the low end of where his snaps could be and and his usage. But Sean, you were talking about their passing game as well. I mean, I wrote it this week, Brandon Ayuk, Debo Samuel, right after the trade, when we talked, I said, I thought Debo would kind of be the, the other guy that's the focal point in the offense, McCaffrey, Debo, then Ayuk and Kittle might disappear at times. Ayuk is playing really well. He has a drop for a TD here. He gets tackled at the two-yard line on another play. Very kind of unlucky if you played Ayuk in fantasy to not get a touchdown, in my opinion, because that's the only incompletion to Ayuk. He catches every other target and looks great on every other play that he gets an opportunity. The drop in the end zone, just a tough one, right? But he looks like, to me, like that gap is very much narrowed in my mind. And, and from again, we all have priors. For me, it was a little wider, I guess. Debo is Debo. Debo's still going to be really, really important to this offense, but I don't think Ayuk's going to go anywhere. I'm pretty excited about the the teams where I have him. How are you viewing that whole offense, which is a juggernaut now, as we talked about? It is, or it should be. And I think that's the most disappointing thing, is that you look at the level of talent on this team, and they're not getting nearly as much out of it. Now, there have been a lot of different elements. And so I think that maybe the biggest takeaway is that this offense will rise as we go down the stretch and they will look like a Super Bowl contender. I think that that's one of the reasons why these games, since they brought McCaffrey in, have been a little bit frustrating, right? Week eight, week 10, when they had him a little bit more fully incorporated than weeks seven, you have 29 pass plays per game. 36 on the full season and so obviously it's been more run heavy which again owes a lot to this game in week 10 when i say there have been a lot of different elements you have the trade so you've got moving pieces you have elijah mitchell being out you have debo missing the week before the bye not being 100 healthy you have kittle starting the season with the groin injury you have a different qb starting the season and jimmy garoppolo not even really being ready to take over when Trey Lance gets injured. So if we're saying that they're not as good as they were down the stretch last year, that probably doesn't come as a surprise, but it's still a big disappointment in terms of the way that they are playing. This team down the stretch last season was absolutely sensational, right? You have Ayuk, Kittle, Samuel averaging well over two yards per route over the final 10 weeks. They're all being targeted on more than 20% of their routes. Kittle's at 10.5 yards per target. Think about that and how efficient that is. Both of the other two guys are over 11. Now, and that's over a 10-game span to close out the season. It's not like picking out you know one or two good games here or there. So we know that portions of that are going to be unsustainable, but I think that how the whole thing is manifesting is very, very frustrating. So we take out those first three games, right? The two, the, the game in the rain, the game with the injury, you take out Garoppolo's first game because, again, he wasn't really ready to play. You look at weeks four through the present, and the way that these numbers have deteriorated for the receivers, pretty frustrating. You mentioned Ayuk and how he's looked good. He's still at almost 10 yards per target, which is fantastic for him, and his target per route has actually crept up a little bit. So his efficiency numbers are staying very similar Kittle, Samuel, those guys collapsing. Again, the target per route numbers are up, but 
they've dropped huge margins off of the yard per target. And the reason for that are kind of a variety of things. You have these declining A dots that we did a couple of shows really been on this for the NFL as a whole, but the 49ers have been a team that's been very much effective where Ayuk is down by over one. The other two guys have lost 1.5 and then Debo's A dot has collapsed. And you're maybe thinking, well, how does that relate to you know, the early part of last season? We're not even talking about the time at the beginning of last season where he's dominating. We're talking about this time where he's being used a little more underneath and as a running back. And then the other element of it is that because now you're not getting these guys behind the defense at times, you're not being able to generate the big plays. They've all lost in terms of yards after the catch as well. So they're being targeted much more shallowly and then they're not running as much. Debo's lost almost a full yard after the catch. Ayuk has lost almost a full yard and Kittle's lost a half yard. Now Debo's still, I mean, he drops from number one to number two in the NFL, but we're talking about, you know, how do you have all of these different things kind of add up? And there was an unsustainability element to the profiles for various players, but to lose so much and now to be going in a direction where the team doesn't appear to even want to use them. Kittle's numbers for this last game and his usage just, you know, fairly tragic. I I want to see them go out and you talk about how McCaffrey's out there for these pass plays. We need to have more pass plays and we need to unlock the receiving weapons so that we have the space for these guys to really operate. I mean, if they can go out there and be more aggressive going forward, and, and so much of it I really do think is going to be health and continuity for play calling, options, all of those types of things. But when you look at what they're doing now, and even if you didn't know any of these advanced stats, didn't know any of the peripherals, I mean, you watch the game and for the amount of talent they have, I mean, they're stumbling their way down the field when they make their way down the field at all. And you simply can't have that when you've put together more or less an all-star team. I mean, if you had this roster in the Pro Bowl, you'd think, yeah, we can go take on whoever. When you're taking on just one other NFL team and the defense they're putting out in the field that week, you have to be more dynamic. And I think that they will be. So I guess part of this is frustration at where they are, but also it's looking forward and saying, when you have Kyle Shanahan and you have these players can they be this pedestrian and mundane as they make their push for a playoff spot and try to go and, and position themselves to win a Super Bowl? I don't think they can. So I think if you can buy on these players, you want to at least consider that, especially if you get prices that reflect what they've been doing over these last handful of games. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. 
Indeed.com slash blue wire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC. And that brings us to the win bet segment of the week. Sign up today to receive a special sports offer. Bet $100, win $100. Download the win bet app now or visit wynnbet.com to start winning. Think about the concept of regression. Because as you were talking about Jonathan Taylor losing a touchdown and a two-point conversions worth of efficiency, my thought was, well, the big plays haven't been there. And you talked about how the, the big run this week really improved things for him. Last year, he had so many explosive long touchdowns. Debo Samuel, same deal. Had several long touchdown runs. He also had, I think it was three touchdowns of 65 yards or longer. Maybe it was only two. He was one of only like five receivers in the NFL who had that many long touchdowns. I only know that stat because I was using it as anti-Van Jefferson propaganda because that was basically all Van Jefferson did last year. He was one of those five guys. Jamar Chase, another one. You know the guys, but Debo Samuel had some explosive long touchdowns last year in the receiving game and in the rushing game. We haven't seen as many of those. And so I think there are people that would listen to this and say, this is what regression is. This is why we talk about it. You guys often in the offseason want to say that we think about regression the wrong way, but this is what happens. I think it's interesting as we sit here and talk about it, Sean, and obviously you and I are going to be a little bit biased, but we're talking about it from this context of, We can't even imagine that they haven't gotten any explosive plays with this good of an offense. Same thing with Jonathan Taylor. We're like last week made a lot of sense. And now we're really comfortable going forward, expecting him to do more of that. Um, We've seen it with Nick Chubb this year. He's a guy that, you know, we always, when we talk about him, we're not always super on him, but we've always really acknowledged he's an incredibly talented player. And he's been able to string together like just long touchdown runs every week. And even when they have bad games last week, they had a bad game. He has another long touchdown run and still has a solid fantasy line because I mean, great players make plays. We're talking about an offense here that has so many great players and isn't creating explosive plays anywhere. You're talking about how the ADOTs have come down the yards after catches and they're, they're not doing the things that make them look so dynamic. This is why I basically in my mind want to just write off week 10 and, and, think that Kyle Shannon has to look at that and how hard it was. I mean, they ran the ball effectively, but the, the, that's not how he can possibly want his offense to look with what they have and the weapons that they have. Debo's been banged up. I think they haven't really leaned on him as heavily because they have other options and they're thinking about a playoff push. And I, Debo's going to have his moments this year. I mean, we're going to get to a point where we saw it last year, how much they, they leaned on him, how – differently they would use him and make sure to get the ball in his hands it didn't matter what the script was if they were ahead in games they used him as a runner if they were behind they used him down the field they know what he is as a weapon i don't think this is i mean you can't possibly imagine just looking at him independently that he's not going to get opportunities to make big plays and also that if you've watched him over the last few years that he's not going to make those plays when he gets those opportunities he's going to generate some big plays 
And we feel similarly about how good McCaffrey is. You talk about, obviously, Kittle's ridiculous efficiency and how good Ayuk has looked. I mean, these guys are going to make plays individually. You start thinking about how you stack those together in an offense. I mean, one of the – Elijah Mitchell looks great in this game, but one of the most alarming things about the whole thing is you gave him 18 rush attempts. Those are 18 plays where you decided at you know at the play-calling level – you're not going to let the ball get into the hands of any of those other four players who are better than Elijah Mitchell. Again, the Chargers are a defense that you would do that against, and Mitchell was running effectively, and so you can understand some of the reasons that they made some of those decisions. But as they got in close in the red zone, like I said, Elijah Mitchell gets the five green zone carries, doesn't convert those drives. There are elements to that where he ran effectively, but they also are going to look at it and go, this is not the most effective way that we can play. And you talk about the Chargers – you know, asking people to run, this is why you ask people to run. Right. So they don't actually use their weapons against you. Yeah, it's a bend, don't break kind of thing, and, and you hold them to field goals and all of that. I mean, even late, they hold them to that field goal, and the Chargers get another draft. They get the ball back. They, You know, they're down six with a minute left. I mean, I, I was kind of saying the Niners didn't want to score. I mean, they, they did want to score there on that last drive. They wanted to put the game to two scores and put it away, and they weren't able to do it. And Mitchell, most of his work was in the second half. All of those, uh, the point I was making about the various drives that McCaffrey got his touches on, all of the first half opportunities in the green zone went to McCaffrey. It was really like a, Mitchell got all five of his green zone touches in the second half. It was a, this has been working and we're going hot hand kind of a kind of a thing. That's just a mistake. I think you go back and you look at that and you go, we probably didn't run out our best offense by riding the hot hand here in his first game back and all that stuff that, I, that plays into it. They're, they're excited for Mitchell that he played well. At any rate, <clears throat> I'm excited to see this offense the rest of the way for all the reasons that you said, I, I do think the point I was trying to make about regression is yes, regression can hit. And yes, it has hit. And as you know, Debo still very good. in some of those numbers goes from first in the league to second in the league. But when it hits, we're sitting here and we're kind of mind boggled about how, they haven't been able to do more. And so when you see regression actually hit on this level for really good players, it is kind of like a floor outcome for them to, to not produce any explosive plays and be even like closer to league average. They're not even like below average. You're talking about them not being able to maintain yards per target figures that are well above average. They've come back to this average range. And we're saying this can't really it, – it feels like it can't sustain. They have too much opportunity, too many weapons. So that was just a big picture point I wanted to make on regression. That's like this is why sometimes we say don't fade regression or, or efficiency and, and, and don't just buy into regression because sometimes when the regression really does hit, like it, and it can hit, it's a real thing. We're not saying it's not. But you sit there in the moment and you're like this doesn't feel like it was the most likely outcome. Yeah, and the numbers really are not great now for Kittle and Samuel. And it's it's tough because there are elements of it where you, you lose some of the big plays. And that's how you lose some of the efficiency. But then the other thing that you can have that you talk about from time to time is when some of these situations change. You're wondering if that's temporary or if the team is going to go with it over time. I mean, there are decisions that have been made here in terms of play calling both pass versus run, but then also the specific types of pass plays that are disconcerting. And I don't think that the 49ers will stick with things that aren't working and that limit 
you know, you don't go out and put together this type of team and then decide not to use them, but it's possible. I mean, one of the problems that we've had with a number of teams and with the league, you could argue in general this season, is that teams have made the decision to play more conservatively and to let defenses dictate their play calling to them. The question that we have kind of from a midseason perspective and then have on a variety of specific teams, and they tend to be the most interesting teams, right? Because they have these types of players is how are they going to adjust over the second half? You know, are they going to do some of the things that the Chiefs and Bills did last year to really get their offenses revved up again after they had those downturns? I think the 49ers will. And so I'll be buying here. But I mean, you have to buy with your eyes wide open because it's not that there are no red flags. I mean, it could go the other way on you. Yeah, yeah. And we know Shannon can be run heavy. I mean, there's a possibility that he just continues to be too run heavy and there's not enough volume and all that stuff. Again, the whole point I'm trying to drive home is we're always playing the market. And the market, I think, was too certain of that when they traded for McCaffrey. There's not going to be enough volume for everybody. That this couldn't be a rising tide raises all boats situation. We talked about it in the offseason with regression stuff. You frequently said, like, if Debo Samuel wasn't as good as he was, maybe we would be more comfortable taking him in the second round. Because you see how ridiculous his efficiency was. And then it's like, oh, he has to regress. We get too certain about this concept of regression. And look, it has hit. It's a weird point to be making in this scenario. But like Cooper Cup's another example where his numbers were insane. They looked like they had to regress. That was on a lesser scale, but talked about with him. And and I think they probably did regress. I haven't looked at his efficiency numbers recently before his injury. I I bet they had regressed somewhat. He didn't hit as many. I wrote about that on Monday. And it is kind of interesting to see like the, the parts of his game that have had to come down because their offense is so bad and how they balance that out to where he goes from like 25.9 to 25.1. Right. I mean, people are, are like, Oh, well you can't do what you're doing. They'll say, well, number one, you could do some other things to balance that out. It's like, are you going to take 25.1 points per game instead of 25.9? But the other thing is even if they hadn't been able to do those things and he falls to 22 or 21 or 20, are you not going to take him? At that level that's exactly the point i'm trying to make how much regression how certain do you how certain are we about regression how far does it have to regress what does that mean that was why i brought up cup is that he still produced i mean you hit it exactly still at 25.1 i just pulled it up 10.2 yards per target last year 8.3 this year but he's still scoring very similarly in fantasy like you said there's some trade-offs sometimes not as efficient maybe you get more targets maybe you have more catches instead of a you know two play long touchdown drive where you hit on because they were able to get cups and vertical stuff last year now you have four catches on the drive and you get relatively close yardage and you're adding more PPR points, you know, in, in some respects. That number is pre-week 10 in terms sure. of the 25.1. When you're that type of player and you are that important to an offense, you're, the, the offense's answer to not having as much efficiency is just to get the ball in your hands more on more plays and, and different ways. And we'll see that with Debo as well. I think it's been a big inj- injury thing for him. So for me, just I, I'm – for me, I'm still very excited about McCaffrey. I'm I'm worried more that what's happening with the offense is going to continue to limit the receivers. And so in terms of where does McCaffrey sit in that group and then what do we do with some of the other players? I mean, the big note this week, as, as you mentioned, is people are scared about McCaffrey with Elijah Mitchell. That part isn't the part that's scary for me. Yeah, and I, I agree. I, I'm talking really positively about Debo. I started this whole thing saying, I think the gap between Debo and Ayuk has narrowed. And because McCaffrey is going to be so important in the passing game and the ADOT has come down and he's going to catch a lot of balls, I think. 
that does impact the receivers. I, I'm with you on that. And if Ayuk is playing better, there does become a squeeze. And we talked about that squeeze when they got McCaffrey. I thought it would squeeze out Ayuk and Kittle. My thought on it is Ayuk has stepped up so much now that it does start to squeeze out Debo. Some the, I, the point I'm just trying to make on regression is like he's going to still be – he's going to have his moments. But like you can't feel as positive about Debo now as you did in August. And really that is because the other players around him have played so well. I mean, well – They've added McCaffrey, who can play so well, and, and IU has played really well. Sean, I want to ask you about Trey McBride, because when we did our waivers, you put in the initial claims, I, I sent you a little message. I was like, I feel like we're not as high on Trey McBride as we should be, because I remember back in draft season, you were saying you had given up all pretense. You wanted to take Trey McBride on every team. You got him on a lot of best ball, I'm sure, and, and you're excited about that. Ertz gets hurt. Again, very unfortunate. McBride's not going to immediately take all of Ertz's available opportunity. There's for as much crap as I give Zach Ertz, there's obviously elements of that that are him from a skill perspective, his ability to find gaps in zones. I mean, he runs five yards and turns around on every route, but like he, he runs to the right five yards. Yeah, I mean, if you run into the spot the defense isn't covering and teams won't throw over the top, then you're like, I'm going to get a million targets. Yeah, it works. But there is this huge target share. I mean, I, I don't usually do the positional team positional stuff, but like, Arizona tight ends have been very involved in this offense this year. Marquise Brown is hurt. Robbie Anderson has done nothing. I do think this Zacherts injury shifts targets to DeAndre Hopkins and Rondell Moore in the short area of the field. Maybe James Conner is a little bit even more exciting. We talked about how big his role was this past week. You know, Benjamin now gone. Some of those short area targets can shift to other places. But in terms of what's in front of Trey McBride now, he the fact that they used him so heavily in response is positive in week one the fact that there have been so many targets for the tight ends in this offense all season is positive the opportunities in front of him if he's the player we thought he was i went a couple hundred bucks in some spots to get him in some main events some teams that i don't do with you are you as optimistic about what trey mcbride could be down the stretch as i am maybe not (laughs) part of this is you the players that you're the most excited about you can't help but lose a little bit of that as it doesn't develop through the season and i think if you weren't on trey mcbride then it's a lot easier to go after him now i think if you didn't believe in what he did as a college player you weren't really fired up about just how athletic he is i talk a lot about trying to load up on these ultra athletic tight ends and you're not always going to hit, but you can hit in a huge way. If you do, then you have this offense with the Cardinals where they have been good for some of the individual fantasy players. And you have Kyler Murray. It's not something where you think the offense is going to limit these guys. Like the offenses have limited so many players across the rest of the NFL. You have the Cardinals using their first pick on him and selecting him ahead of some players, other positions of need you know that the the GM and the the front office here, along with Cliff Kingsbury, are under some pressure, right? The owner is not happy, and these guys need to show that the decisions that they're making are working. There is, I mean, there's just real pressure to make yourself look good. And so you talk about how McBride is out there for all of these routes. I mean, they need to show something. And when once you lose Zach Ertz, there's even more of an urgency there to be like, our pick was right. And so I think that there are a lot of elements that are very positive and all point in the same direction where the incentive is for them to play him and make him look good. And at the same time, they have to win some games here. 
And from that perspective, you have to question if he wasn't able to make an impact early on when they didn't have DeAndre Hopkins and they didn't have dynamism within the offense. I mean, I think it's so funny that we joke enough about AJ Green on the show that even though I'm not on social media column, it's like even Ben was fired up about AJ Green's catching the last yeah, game. I mean, he didn't look offended on that play. We got oh, a, man, a I, glimpse of the Bengals' A.J. Green. That was an yeah. exciting catch. I was I used to love watching that guy play with the Bengals. That was a fun play. Yeah. So we do have to give him credit. He came to play in Week 10. First time since maybe like 2013. <laughs> no, he, he came to play. That looked good. But you have this early season opportunity. He's not able to take advantage of it at all. So I think you just have question how ready he is to really – make a contribution to this offense and it does sound like marquise brown is coming back but then the other thing is that rondell moore now is starting to look like an emerging star and we've kind of jumped the gun and declared that at points in the past when he has a good game because we think he was a fantastic prospect i mean it's easy to forget when he's running all of these routes at the line of scrimmage that this is a guy with 4-2 speed and 40 inch vertical and you know if you actually run him down the field it's going to be hard for defenses to match up with him you have a game here. I think this game was a lot more exciting. Number one, if you're an Arizona fan, but also if you're a fantasy manager, 35 targets total. 27 of those goes to DeAndre Hopkins and Rondell Moore. Colt McCoy, and you can argue the play calling, demonstrating that in this game, Arizona knows who their stars are. You add Brown into that, and then you add, I think, the inconsistency that Kyler Murray brings. I don't know that if we look past the next couple of weeks where there probably is going to be an opportunity and you do want to see him spike, I kind of still think at this point that with how unready to play McBride has been, is it more of a 2023 play? The flip side of it is that I'm going to have Bride in basically every dynasty league. And I do try and build a lot of tight end strength and depth in those leagues because anything tight end premium, I think you want to dominate that spot it can be so key for you over time. So having that depth, I mean, Trey McBride is somebody I could move. He's McBride and Keontae Ingram, basically the two big waiver pickups in the FFPC this week. You can pull that up on our waiver wire report tool. So you think to yourself, well, this is a tiny move, but in the big picture, I'm still much higher than the market on Trey McBride. So you, you can't actually move him. Those are kind of the things that I'm looking at in, in terms of the two different directions. Can he do enough instantly to still be part of an offense that, and, and you were making this case a couple weeks ago when, I mean, I was coming to you very frustrated and said, I mean, can Kyler Murray be good? He's kind of the foundation piece for our RV Triflex Dynasty League team. Can this team be fun with DeAndre Hopkins and Marquise Brown? Now we have Rondell Moore emerging. And you said, look, I mean, they can. They're going to be really exciting. You know, then you have Murray with that hamstring injury. It's just tough because it seems like every time a lot of the things that we're looking to have happen in 2022 are on the verge, then you have some other minor injury that takes that continuity out of play. But I guess I'm looking at this Cardinals team and they seem like a team on the rise, even though they're not in great shape. When you consider that probably no one has, well, I mean, you got the Seahawks out in front. I mean, teams are going to believe they can still bring the Seahawks back. You have a path to making the playoffs in the NFC, even if you started very poorly. I think the Cardinals are going to surge behind these receiving weapons. 
this Cardinals passing attack. And then, you know, they even managed to use James Conner somewhat effectively in this last game. This could be one of those blitzkrieg offenses over the second half of the season. They lose those Ertz targets. I don't know that they replace them with a different tight end targets. Yeah, that's fair. Um, my counter would be a couple data points. The first, well, this isn't a data point. This is an opinion, but I don't think there's any team in the entire NFL that I have less faith in understanding what their players are than Cliff Kingsbury and and the whole Arizona Cardinals organization. And I don't think it's really close. Uh, you're talking about how good Rondell Moore has looked. We thought he looked that good in the first month of last season. He actually made some great plays in the first month. And then they completely sidelined him. They wouldn't use him all year. And when they did, they only use him as an underneath player. He had the really exciting like 77-yard TD in like week two or week three last year, which was a broken play, a scramble drill. But he catches a pass, weaves through defenders, and goes for a TD. He had another play downfield early last year that was like in the two-minute drill where he caught a pass on the run. I can't remember the exact thing, but I referenced it a lot in Stealing Signals that he had made some of these plays you know, last year. But he needed to get out of bounds. They didn't have any timeouts. And like the defender kind of had the angle and he kind of showed that he was going towards out of bounds, cut back towards the field side to make the defender miss and then got out of bounds like 10 yards further downfield. It was just a really great after the catch plan. It's like, this guy's so good at space. That all happened in like the first month of his rookie year. And then they were like, yeah, we're only going to use this guy on jet motion stuff and throwing him the ball at the line of scrimmage with a 1.28 odd or whatever it was. This year, we're seeing him show more of that. He makes the one-handed catch this week. I don't think they know what they're doing. And then the second point would be Trey McBride hasn't earned any playing time so far. So, like, he hasn't made a contribution yet. He just ran 80% of the snaps, didn't have any practice time with the first team or any of that stuff, presumably. I mean, probably some rotational stuff, but no real expectation of him being a huge part of the game plan this week. I do hear everything you said. I, I didn't I Googled it while you were talking. I didn't realize Marquise Brown was likely to play this week. I, that's that's on me. I don't even know if that is exactly the case. It sounds in like terms it. of what they'll do. But I mean he's gonna play soon. I mean, one way or another, he's gonna play soon. Unless yeah. he'll be back. He reinterests himself. Right. And that, that's that's sort of the uncertainty is like how healthy will he be, how quickly he'll get back up to speed. And you talked about how concentrated it's been with Hopkins and more. I guess I don't think he can be that concentrated, especially because like this past week, McCoy his ADOT was very low, which has been a thing for him his whole career. He's a good, good backup, effective, uh, usually a high completion percentage guy, but he just doesn't really push the ball down the field much. He's taking a lot underneath stuff. And that's what we saw, a lot of short passes to Hopkins and Rondale. I don't think you can do that every single week once Kyler's back and what you actually want to do as an offense. And so they do need additional pieces. This team does throw enough. It is exciting enough. My argument would be like, yeah, even if – when Brown's back, if it is a lot of Hopkins and more and Brown, there's still going to be targets going to that fourth piece. You know, like if he's good, he's good. And, and he's going to have the opportunity. Unlike Rondell last year, he should be able to run routes. And anyway, it, it'll be interesting to see for sure. McBride brings athleticism to the table. He's got a lot of experience catching passes. He's not one of these guys. And, and you can say that it doesn't matter as much in terms of projecting the tight ends, but a lot of these tight ends are projections in terms of what they will do as receivers specifically. Trey McBride, I mean, he's a receiving threat. So it is exciting. One of the reasons I didn't bid quite as high on some of these teams, I actually already have plenty of Trey McBride 
going to break. So. I figured. I figured. I was like, Sean's already got these bags way overpacked. He just doesn't need to get way too much more into the Trey McBride bucket. It'll be fun. It'll be fun to see. I mean, I'm not like certain he's going to be great. I think everything you said is very valid. But again, the point I'm making about Kingsbury and the whole Arizona organization not knowing their talent is like typically the fact that McBride hasn't been able to earn his way on the field would be a problem for me. It's not really in this case because especially the Rondell point, like I, I don't feel like they know what they're doing with their player. I mean, even just like the Eno Benjamin cut, like they don't, that reportedly was, you know, being frustrated in some locker room stuff. We don't know what was said or what was done or what have you, but what are you doing? <laughs> they just like, they, they don't know who their good players are, like manage that internally. Guys get frustrated. It, it seems like they were trying to make an example out of him. There has been some stuff like with, and I, I understand it because Kyler a few weeks ago, very publicized where he was coming back to the sideline and yelled at Kingsbury. I can't remember the exact phrase. I believe it included a cuss word. So it's a good thing that I can't remember the exact phrase. And that got widely publicized. Kingsbury got asked about it in a press conference and he said he didn't hear it and, and hadn't seen the film or whatever, had to kind of downplay, but it was a shot to the authority of the, of the coaching staff and the team from Kyler. And so then you have, you know, a couple weeks later doing this and it's like, we're going to make an example out of a player that doesn't really matter and cut him. That's the way I'm kind of reading it, but like, that's just bad management. And like, I don't know, make an example out of whoever you want. Uh, I, probably don't make an example out of players that can be effective parts of your offense. And we actually think, you know, could have been, or, or has been for the most part. So that's a little bit bizarre to me as well. I just don't think these guys, know what their players bring particularly well. And so the fact that McBride hasn't played so much all year, I'm not really marking as a huge negative on what he's done in practice or how good he is. I want to see it for myself. Yeah. And, and it should be fun. It should be exciting. I'm looking forward to seeing it. The, you know, cut disappointing because he's a guy that we have liked. You mentioned to me that supposedly the chiefs had put in a claim that would have been really fun it would have been interesting to see what they did there i do think that the backups for james connor are guys that they also like and they don't think there's a lot of separation there keontae ingram a player who sort of brings that big back hybrid ability not a fantastic athlete but someone who caught a lot of passes across his seasons at texas and usc 89 across those four years three different seasons with 20 plus receptions as a college player despite his size jonathan ward more or less a special teams guy but he always flashes when they put him out there i would love to see those two guys more into you know again you're always a little bit biased based on what your rosters look like but since i don't have james connor i'd be very happy for him to not play and daryl williams always hurts the offense every time he's on the field so ingram and ward some deep names that you might look at. Obviously, Ingram added a lot this week. I think that they are excited about those players, so that could also factor into it. It is something where, you know, with kind of Aaron Rodgers leading the way and you have these quarterbacks who are showing a lot of disrespect to their head coaches, it, it just creates some problems because obviously we know the quarterbacks have a ton of leverage within the organization. When your owner has sort of undercut the front office in ways that are somewhat public in the prior offseason, and Kingsbury has had some faults and you do get the impression that there is frustration in terms of the tempo of getting plays in and then which plays are called at times. The play calling aspect you and I have talked about a lot 
in the past and how that tempo needs to be there. You can understand the players being frustrated, but I mean, if you're going to be a leader, you have to lift your coach up because I mean, he's the guy that the whole team has to believe in, or you're going nowhere. I mean, it can't be your thing. Like we're going to get the coach fired and then we're going to be good in the future. That's for fantasy analysts to do. Yeah. That was a, that was a bad look, bad look for Kyler for sure. Sean, you mentioned Keontae Ingram and on the next show, we're going to talk about, a lot of those types of running backs that might be underrated stashes. I'm really excited for that. We've, we've already hit on with each other, what, what our topic will be for the next show. It's been a weird year and I keep hearing how bone dry the waiver wire is in, in deeper leagues in high stakes stuff. And it is, it's felt that way. But after all the shakeup of the trade deadline, some of the you know usage notes over the last few weeks, there's a lot of guys that are worth talking about and thinking about and players that we have talked about in the past, haven't done anything yet. We might get a little Ronald Jones discussion going on, but he won't be the, the focal point of the show. But I'm excited uh, for that one. So the listeners should definitely tune in. I get that question a lot. Who are the players I should stash? I do think this is a year where we're going to see a Keontae Ingram type have an impact in the fantasy playoffs. It's been an un- a weird year for player usage in a lot of respects and the ways that the offenses are doing things, but it does feel like we are headed for some names that are not necessarily household names, even now at running back, particularly having an impact on the stretch, depending on where maybe some injuries occur or what happens, but That'll be a fun one to, to break down. It definitely will. And it's easy to forget when you are in FFPC leagues, for example, and you have two weeks to go and you're making this push to the playoffs into the do or die, that there are a lot of leagues that have five weeks to go. But the NFL season has a long way to go, right? We're about half over. And you think about when those fantasy playoffs happen in most leagues. You think about when the million dollars are handed out for the FFPC main event or the underdog tournament there. And those games still down the line. We're going to have a lot of change over this next month that's going to dictate those championships in a very big way. It's one of the reasons why I think 2022 has been a lot of fun. It can be frustrating. There have been key injuries. You've got low-scoring games. But we've also witnessed a lot of teams change from week to week some of the things that they're doing and we do anticipate a reaction from some of these offenses down the stretch so i think the second half of 2022 is going to be better than the first half i think it's going to be more exciting and definitely you're going to have league winners come from sort of the middle of the pack here to win those championships we'll talk about that and more on the next episode of ceiling bananas i'm sean siegel with me as always is ben gretch whom you can follow at Yards per Gretch, make sure you sign up for Stealing Signals. Make sure you sign up for Stealing Lines, the new NBA product that's part of that. Uh, Just out, I know that Ben and Dalton and Mike Brody are excited about that one. We'd love to have you over at Rotoviz using the coupon code RVRADO2022 if you want to save 10% on that one-year subscription. Sign up to the feed. We're going to, Ben, try and do some different shows over the next month depending on when we both have some time available. So you'll get those earlier if you're signed up to this to the feed. Leave us a rating and review. Drop us a comment on YouTube. Those things all help us with the various algorithms. We'll talk to you guys soon.